Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the very first episode of Muslims of the Melting Pot. Total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Because it's the That's only it. religion that acts like the mafia. They're not immigrants. They're, they're invaders. Let they're not immigrants. This clash of civilizations. And if they're not going to learn to assimilate, I don't want it in this country. But hold up. That's not really who we are. Perhaps the American melting pot model is not an accurate depiction of the true Muslim American experience. And perhaps the goal is not to mix. But if it isn't, then what really is? To assimilate or not to assimilate? That's the question. I'm your host, Sara Salimi, and you are watching Muslims of the Melting Pot. On today's episode, I'm excited to be introducing our very first guest, Muhammad. He is a Palestinian-Canadian Muslim who lived and grew up in Canada as well as the Middle East. Muhammad is a professional chartered accountant by day, and he does comedy by night. On social media, he goes by that Muslim guy, and he uses his platform to educate people about Islam using comedy. Muhammad, thank you so much for being our very first guest, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on this episode. Glad to be here. So first things first, this whole podcast is centered around the symbol of the melting pot. And before anything, we're going to kind of give a little bit of a historic background of what the melting pot really is and why it's become such a characteristic or a symbol of the Western lifestyle. And we're going to get right into it. So to give a little bit of that history, the term melting pot was actually popularized in 1908. So early 1900s, there was this dude named Israel Zangwill. And he was, surprised, not even American, he was a Jewish-British man. He wrote a play called The Melting Pot. And this whole idea behind the play was that there was a Jewish immigrant who came to the U.S. after his family was killed in a Russian pogrom. And basically this whole play was about this idea of this Jewish guy finding refuge in this new land of freedom. The greatest melting pot where all the races of people are melting and reforming, and God is making the American. So he kind of coined this idea of the American through the lens of a melting pot. And it was all about this idea of Americanization, where all these immigrants are being molded into this new phenomenon called the American. And so the idea was really about shedding your own culture and religion and assimilating into what's called this American way. So this idea of a melting pot then became a pretty big deal and has carried on to today. And this conversation is really centering around that whole phenomenon. So I'm going to start my, my first question with you, Muhammad, is what even is this American way? And is there such a thing as American culture? What is, what is American culture? Well, that, that is a very uh, deep and loaded question, of course, and it's very nuanced depending on who you talk to. I've only been to the States a few times here and there, but just as, a, just as a disclosure, the assumption I'm making when making any of these discussions today, any points that I'm making, the assumption is that I'm speaking about practicing Muslims, Muslims who want to preserve their religion, protect their faith while living in what we call the West, because I know that's not always the case. I would say, Let's start off with the melting pot. I know like in the United States, the melting pot kind of comes from that concept of the scientific concept of melting metals, 
together at these high temperatures and in this case kind of melting together these different cultures and backgrounds and this produces a new product that is much stronger essentially being american or american culture in canada i've heard it being described more as a mosaic whereby everyone somewhat retains what makes them unique makes them different but all together you make this beautiful picture or this beautiful image in my opinion the melting pot, it, it sounds great conceptually, but in reality, it might not be implemented as effectively. And while some people don't mind figuratively melting into this figurative pot, I think others are proud of their culture. They're proud of their background. They don't want to change. But to be honest, when someone says, what does it mean to be American or Canadian? What is American culture or Canadian culture? It, it is a very deep and nuanced topic in and of itself, because what is American? Are we talking about Native Americans, the Aboriginals? Are we talking about the European settlers? Are we talking about recent migrants? Anyone who holds a passport, an American or Canadian passport? Or are we just talking about modern day American culture? And what we see in the media, Hollywood, the American dream? Or is it, is it something else? I think to different people, America or American culture or North American culture means something different. So I think it would be very difficult for me to say what is American culture. But from what I have experienced and seen, a lot of it just comes down to, I would say, the first two amendments, if, 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 if that's fair to say. And that would yep. be your freedom of speech and freedom to vote away. <laughs> You've got to have the gun. Nothing else you really hear about. And as a Canadian, the thing we have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the thing that you always hear about is the freedom of speech, freedom to live freely and be whatever religion, whatever you identify as, and that's what you hear about. So you would think that American culture, North American culture, or Western culture as a whole is all about the freedom of expression, democracy, living in a democratic country, everyone is equal, but then when you dig down and you actually start peeling off those layers or start realizing even that comes with its own set of double standards and hypocrisy, depending on who you are. Absolutely. And you mentioned the rights, right? The rights we have, whether it's freedom of speech and expression, the right to bear arms, everything that technically is considered a right in this country, you could even say those rights and the ways they're implemented are subjective. And like you mentioned, is it really the freedoms that we think we have? Do we really have? You actually, in your own content you create on your social media, you've frequently addressed this topic of, you know, is freedom of speech really the freedom of speech? Can we really say anything and everything? You've talked about Islamophobia. You've talked about the lines and the boundaries between hate speech and free speech. So when you really look at a lot of these rights on a practical level, like you've ad addressed extensively, it looks very different for different people, right? And so in some ways you could say that the American that the melting pot is referring to is a very specific type of American. Unfortunately, that is the unfortunate reality. If, for example, if we're just to take a look at Europe and what recently happened in Europe, in Sweden to be exact, there's a Danish-Swedish far-right extremist leader who burnt a Quran or a copy of the Quran in front of a Turkish embassy, an obvious act of provocation. Now, had he just done this out of by himself, the government could have said, oh, you know, we don't, he, it's his freedom, but we don't support this. But no, the Swedish government gave him the approval 
and also use taxpayer dollars or whatever currency they use. I'm, I'm assuming they use euros or francs, or I'm not sure. I'm not educated enough to finish this joke. <laughs> but essentially, they use taxpayer funding to even provide him police escorts to be able to protect him while he's burning the Quran. White man, freedom of speech. Why, why are y'all Muslims getting all, all up and unhappy about this? Whatever, man. It's just freedom of speech. Take it. Take it on the chin. But then if a Muslim were to do the same thing, would we be given the same courtesy? What if you have Muslims, because we also see, this, this makes the topic a little bit more nuanced, if you have Muslims who also play into that narrative, they're also the good guys, right? So I think it might be partially that it's, it is the Muslims are the ones who don't have those freedoms, but from what I see, if you're a Muslim who plays into that narrative, if you're a Muslim who says the things that fit well in that melting pot, you are kind of also part of them because you've become part of that. You've become another ingredient in that melting pot. I think if you're a Muslim and you're doing it, that's, that's even worse because and it, plays, it all plays into identity politics. It's like when you have a person of color and they make it into the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or what we have here, the conservatives or the liberals. We're like, yes, representation. No, that person is just going to do the same bidding of the same group that you dislike that introduces anti-Muslim policies, anti-immigrant policies, but now they're doing it with a different shade of color and they get away with it. Would you say then that Muslims who become part of this are doing more damage than the first group, than, you know, that privileged white American which one do you think is doing more damage to this idea of a Muslim identity in the West? If someone who is white and they are obviously spewing these Islamophobic, anti-Brown, anti-personal color, anti-Muslim rhetoric, you know, oh, that's the enemy right there. That's someone we need to stand up to. Versus if it's someone wearing hijab or a man in a beard calling himself uh, Muhammad, whatever, and spewing the same rhetoric, and now even people who may have been on your side, they're like, but wait, but even Muslims are now pro the Muslim ban, so there's probably something to it. And Absolutely. then that causes more harm. And controversial opinion, but I'm not one of those people who sit down and go, Trump was the worst president in the world. I'm like, no, the Obama administration was equally bad, if not worse. And the pro and that's the main problem. And I think Loki said this in one of his um, uh, one of his uh, one of his work. He said, "Which song was it?" He said, "The agenda doesn't change with the race of your president." Well, I'm glad to know you're endorsing Trump for 2024. Trump, where's my red hat? Where's my red hat? No. So what I'm saying is, with Obama, for example, everyone looked at him as, "Oh, the first black president, very well spoken, very charismatic." We're good. We don't need to pay attention. There's no way exactly. he would stab Americans in the back. And then the same cages that Trump threw kids in, those were built under the Obama administration, but they went undetected. When Trump came in, everyone knew, oh, that is the enemy. So people were able to stand up to him and get rid of the Trump ban, more or less, or the Muslim ban. And you knew where your enemy was. So that's what I'm saying. That's With definitely some true. people, it's mm -hmm. in your face, so you, knew, you know who to stand up to. You know what to fight with others. They, they give you these nice words. They really, 
they they know how to sweet talk you and then they proceed to stab you in the back under the table that's the worst i i would argue that that's a lot more complicated because like you said if you see something that is at direct odds with your identity and who you are it's so much easier to take a stance against it but this leads us into the next question is like this idea that even within the muslim community in the west and specifically north america there's different factions some people say it's like the moderate muslims the liberal muslims the conservative muslims i think labels sometimes are not the most helpful but we do have to acknowledge that there are muslims who are increasingly finding it much more convenient to assimilate into American society, often at the expense of Islamic values themselves. But my next question really hits us at this topic of what does it mean to be American or Canadian or what in a Western country and Muslim at the same time while also being ethnic and cultural? So you're Palestinian yourself, I'm Iranian. What does it mean to be American and Palestinian or Iranian and belonging to all these different identities at the same time. How does that work? So if I'm Palestinian, you're Iranian. Is this podcast even legal? This is probably a violation of the freedom of speech. I can feel the resistance anyways, <laughs> as we get shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, a very, a very interesting and deep topic, but let me cover it this way. So what does it mean to be American and then Muslim and having different, a different cultural and ethnic background? How do we make sense of all this? Well, I would say being American or being Canadian, it, shouldn't it allow you to have those identities or you would think? So personally, I would say that's, that should be the modern day definition of American or Canadian, someone who can legally call themselves American or Canadian. But of course, we know that's not what people mean. We know that's not what it really means. Because if I tell someone I'm Canadian and they're like, oh, well, where are you from from? Exactly. But even before then, they give you a compliment and that's your English is so good. And then it just keeps going down that rabbit hole. So you understand when someone says, are you Canadian? Are you American? We know we know what they mean. Mm -hmm. So where does the challenge lie? Exactly. What are... What are those challenges that are really characteristic of having all these different identities in one? From one end, you have the law, what you can and cannot do. You have your, and then from the other end, you have your cultural background, your religion, your morals and value system. And sometimes these things clash. Islamophobes will use the term, Islam is not compatible with the waste. Sure, you've heard that before. Sharia law. Sharia Lao or Shania Lao or Jew Lao. And you're like, yeah, okay, dude, calm down. Spell that for me. Exactly. So I would say, first of all, the people who say that Adi's land is not compatible with the way, it's a great way to scare people. It's fear-mongering. But in reality, if that is the case, technically, neither is Christianity, Judaism, or any other religion you're going to compare to secularism. So what do you mean by compatibility? I think one of those reasons is also because Islam offers a very objective way of life. And it's different because if you look at Christianity, mostly Christianity compared to Judaism, but of course there's a range, a lot of what their actual religions and scriptures are has been heavily modified in, you know, compared to the way that they currently live their lives. So a lot of that core principles that are part of their faith is kind of been watered down into a very 
chill lifestyle that has sprinkles of religion here and there. So I think Islam, though, what's different and arguably one of the reasons it's targeted so much is because Muslims increasingly try to stay, you know, firm on those principles. The Quran has not been changed. It's probably the only religion that, where that's the case. And Muslims really try to stick to those principles, which for some reason comes off intimidating to the public. 100%. And in an ever-changing world of deteriorating morals, Islam is the one constant. Islam refuses to change. Muslims refuse to change the religion to please other people. Because who are we to change the word of God? And that is where other religions have gone astray. They've changed the word of God to meet their own objectives, the, po the political objectives of their leaders, or just to appease, appeal to a wider audience. And that is what many people, many converts to Islam, believers to Islam, find attractive about Islam. It's objective. It's logical. If you walk in with an open mind and not with pre-existing biases, if you go in with an open heart and you actually listen, it makes sense. And because we refuse to change, people are telling us to assimilate and integrate. Islam needs to be reformed. And you're like, actually, no, the solution does not need to be reform just to please you but okay. furthermore let me just uh, i just have a few points i really want to talk about this and that is when living as a muslim and being a minority in a non-muslim majority country or somewhat a mixture of a christian somewhat secular state it does represent present challenges and it's not even it's it's not just one or two things it's really all aspects of life like something as small as owning property the loan from the bank is interest bearing or riba this is haram so now you have to deal with that situation and you have various options that you're trying to look into. You have to get fatwas that have to be issued to see how to deal with the situation. Something you may not necessarily have to deal with, but the Muslim majority country. Then consuming and transacting in alcohol, again, against our religion, assuming you're a practicing Muslim. Yet almost every place, the workplace, every event, every social, every restaurant, every store has alcohol. So do we just not go out? Do we socialize at work? Do we not socialize at work? Do we go out with friends in these environments? Do we not? Do we stay away? What can and can't be done? Where do we draw the line? And then there's the, the, uh, the conversation that gets everybody canceled if you dare spell something incorrectly, and that's the LGBT community. We yes. know as Muslims, we do not agree with that lifestyle. It is sinful, plain and simple. It is sinful in Islam. Yet, how do we address this? In this political and social environment whereby being anything you say that may disagree with that, with the agenda, with the community, if you don't 100% unequivocally agree with everything, you're labeled as a hateful bigot, you can get canceled, you can lose your job. So how do we navigate that environment? Then we have the very politicians who are supposed to run this country or run our, these countries in a democracy, and yet they're spreading Islamophobia as well, anti-Muslim policies, be it the Muslim ban under Trump, Bill 21 in Quebec, Canada, which is making it almost impossible to wear a hijab as a Muslim woman and work in a public sector. The Anti-Separatism Act in, or Anti-Separatism Bill in France, which literally targets almost every aspect of a Muslim's life. And then you have Muslim communities being spied on, vilified, arrested, violated by law enforcement. So now as a Muslim, almost everything about you is being attacked, targeted. You're being othered. This will either make you closer to your faith, to your religion, and make you more attached to it, or you might want it all to stop. You might just want it all to go away. I don't want to look at me, and you decide you don't want to, you, don't, you no longer want to identify as a Muslim. And then this creates the identity issues. 
Exactly. And I think what you're saying is actually the core of why identity is so important. It's the question of why should, why should I care? Why can't I just live in this society, be a Muslim, do everything they do? And I think that really comes to the core because you mentioned, for example, schooling systems. It's not just about how I'm living my life right now as a Muslim. I might be able to get away with all of this in my generation, but what about the next generation? What about the kids I'm going to raise in this society? As we're moving further and further into this moral decay that's kind of become characteristic of Western societies, and increasingly liberalism as you know a, a system itself where it's an increasing degradation of moral, natural, every kind of boundary, just a boundaryless world where there are no rules. And the only rules that are there are essentially protecting a very small minority of people. So do you think that Islam as an objective truth can ever fully integrate in a subjective system that we're witnessing in the West? Again, it depends on what you mean by integrate and assimilate. So when people say you need to integrate, you need to assimilate, if what they're saying is you need to let go of your religion, you need to let go of your beliefs, you need to let go of your value system, the moment you cross this border and the moment you come in, you agree with us. Every single thing you must conform. First of all, I'll ask you, who's us? Because you have the atheist, secular-minded Americans. You have the Christian America, the, the hardcore Christians. Both these groups, Americans, whites, talk about abortion. Where's the popcorn? Just talk about abortion. Those two groups do not agree. Talk about the LGBT community. Those two do not agree. So as a Muslim, I walk in, who, who am I supposed to assimilate and integrate with? Exactly. So that's my question. Now, can you, as a Muslim, continue to live, or can you, as a Muslim, integrate and assimilate into society? Well, if by integrate and assimilate, you mean, number one, you follow the laws of the country. Well, as Muslims, we have no problem with that. As Muslims, we are taught, according to Islam, to abide by the laws of the country you live in, assuming they're not fully violating the rights of preventing you from even practicing your faith. Pay taxes. Yes, of course. Of course we'll pay taxes because it's illegal not to, even though we don't want to pay taxes. No one wants to pay taxes. But you have to. How about being a productive member of society? Yes, 100%. We believe you should be a productive member of society. Volunteering, giving back to your broader community, your local community. Yes, 100%. Are these not integrated? Being a businessman, entrepreneur, creating jobs, not integrating. Being a doctor, saving lives, not assimilating. Doing from a construction worker to an electrician to a doctor to a, a media, what, political analyst, whatever, running running for politics, running for office, all of these are not part of integrating and assimilating, is the only thing to you, integrating and assimilating, the only thing is let go of your entire faith system. So that shows the hypocrisy. That shows the double standards. So I think it's, it's broader than that too, and you hit at an issue that I think really is important in this conversation, and it's that you're not a problem or an issue if you're doing things for non-ideological purposes. And I think it's that ideology that's the problem. And this really kind of took an exponential rise following 9-11, where there was obviously the war on terror and everything kind of came full circle in terms of, as you mentioned, mosques being spied on, you know, Muslims being spied on, Muslims being the whole airport situation and the interrogations and everything. So I think really what's at the heart of this is 
if your ideology doesn't match with the direction that society is going, you're not an issue if you are on par with that ideology, but if you start to deviate from it, then you're becoming a problem. So where do we kind of back to this idea of you assimilate in certain areas, like you said, being productive as a member of society, helping, there, Islam has no issue with that, but where do you think that line should be drawn? The line should be drawn on where something is clearly unequivocally prohibited in Islam, something that's clearly haram. So something as small as, can I or can I not get support from the, let's say I'm going out for a rally for Palestine. Can I get support by, let's say the LGBT community, there's an LGBTQ club and they, they're for human rights and they're like, we'll, we'll support you for this Palestine rally. Perfect, thank you. But now that they have a rally for you know, pride parade or whatnot, they come to you and they're like, hey, tit for tat. We supported you for Palestine. Are you going to support us or not? Wait, what? Can I do that? And I know uh, uh, Dr. Yasser Pali talked about that at one point. He said, like, university students, MSAs started realizing, oh, like, how do we navigate this political environment? The scenario that you just said, it's something that, whether it's MSAs or the current generation, is every day dealing with in universities, in job environments, professional environments, academics, you know, chill circles of friends and family. And you could argue that even though we can say, yes, Islam is an objective truth, it's difficult when you apply that on a social and practical level because now you also have Muslims who think differently about what those laws and rules even mean in practicality. I would say, I would just add a little bit to that. And I know there's, I know a lot of Muslims who are like that. I know some Muslims who even say, you know, alcohol is not even prohibited in Islam, bro. Come on, bro. Like, that's not what someone is saying. I'm about to tell me what it's saying. Like, I'm sorry that's, for like, yes. you know, how much more clear can you get with some of this stuff? And they're like, oh, but it doesn't say the word haram. It just says avoid it at all costs, but it doesn't say the word haram. Therefore, I'm not, you know, someone booking over from that little bit. It's just, they just don't want to listen. So I would number one say, we need to speak honestly about these things. We need to make sure there's no alternate agenda. What are your intentions with this? There are things that are clear, abundantly clear throughout Islamic history, scholarly consensus through the Quran, through the Hadith, the teachings of things of Prophet the way it was understood by the companions, they're very clear. So the question becomes, okay, this action is haram, but from a political and societal standpoint, from, from getting political leverage, can we or can we not associate with a group like that for a common goal like healthcare or putting pressure on lobby, putting pressure on these to, to stop these lobbyists, to, uh, to protest these politicians who are, who are pro-war, can we or can we not? So then that becomes the question. Can I run for politics? Well, if Muslims are not running for politics, who's going to represent Muslims? Assuming, I understand representation is not everything, but you need to be involved. Absolutely. I think what you actually mentioned, there's, I always hear, for some reason, it's always the extreme. It's like some people are like, oh, well, if you can't live in that society and fully implement all of your principles, then just move to a Muslim country. And I'm like, well, that doesn't solve the problem. Whether you like it or not, we're a generation of Muslims whose parents came to the West. We were born here. We were raised here. In some ways, this becomes a matter of homeland. We have our motherland, which 
a lot of this generation is very heavily rooted in that motherland because of the upbringing they've had. But what will happen to our next generation whose parents were born and raised here and there's definitely less of that connection to the roots. So that also becomes a whole different conversation of how do you navigate those? Do you also send them back home? Like we're just going to mass immigrate back to our parents' countries? Or is it maybe it's not go and leave the country and maybe it's not fully assimilate and do everything, whatever the American way looks like. But like you said, there has to be something in between. You have to be a member of that same society, but as an individual who has a dignified and rooted and principled lifestyle, there are red lines that have to be drawn. Or we don't even show that we're Muslim. You have Muhammad, you have Abdurrahman, who's, who's called uh, Abi, and uh, Mo. And I'm Mo, and I do go by Mo many times, actually, yes. But I make sure to let them know my name is Muhammad. You can call me Mo. Well, if you go by Mo, then I'm sorry to say, but you're part of the problem, sir. You know, I'm 50% of the problem. <laughs> the other 50% is my personality. Anyways. <laughs> but, but I try, we need to also, what I like to call micro skill, micro, micro level that one, which is, oh, where do you disappear to twice a day for five minutes? Oh, I go pray. Yeah. Oh, what, what do you mean? Oh, I'm Muslim. I pray five times a day. Well, I mean, like, you mean like meditate? Meditate? Yeah, something like that. What, five times a day for, for my God? Ritual, but Allah. not religious. And then you're allowed to do yoga, but, you know, when you do it for God, you're a brainwashed uh, religious fanatic. Infidel, yes. Infidel. But communication, being able to show our faith, because that is where it starts. Us being able to be involved in the local community, the broader community, not just the Muslim community. And showing our neighbors, our community, we are Muslim, and here's who we are. Here's how we get back. Here's what we do. So when they see what's on the news, they go, wait a sec. Mm -hmm. I know Mo, Hamid. And I think in the context of Muslims in specific, one of the biggest steps I would add on to your points is when you have these discussions, I think it encourages a lot more Muslims to be proud and unapologetic about their faith where I don't have to, for example, hide the fact that I need to pray, or I, need, I don't need to go to a corner and make sure no one sees me. For some reason, these are all somehow discomforts that a lot of times Muslims have because subconsciously they're like, other people will view me as different and dangerous. So I think these conversations should be, like you said, had more, acknowledging that we may have differences, but we can practice our faith unapologetically and I think that greater conversation provides for much more confidence in being able to, you know, practice our faith the way we would like to. I think that in itself should be a reason why Muslims should be prouder for their faith because they aren't just going with the flow. If there's like a new social norm suddenly, everything that was considered abhorrent a century ago is now completely fine. That doesn't mean my moral compass should change. That just means I should be proud that my religion has offered me a moral compass that doesn't change over time, that remains constant and rooted in narration and scripture. So to kind of close this, I wanted to ask you one last question and end it practically. What is one step that you and I, or anyone listening to this, can take to really address this issue of identity at its heart? What's one step we can take to kind of break down this idea of Muslims in the melting pot and have those conversations we discussed are so necessary? My final piece of advice would be, from my experience, number one, be proud 
of your identity as a Muslim, be it a Muslim Canadian, Muslim American. Be proud of your identity. Number two, the importance of being educated, knowing our religion, not just superficial level, but actually being knowledgeable, enrolling in courses, going to halaqahs at the masjid to learn our religion, to strengthen our faith. And then number three, understanding, and this is a lifetime process, understanding that you'll never please everyone. You will never please everyone. Be proud of being a Muslim. And finally, please Allah, because no one else is worthy of pleasing and no one else will ever be happy. Thank you so much. That was actually a really nice way to kind of wrap up the discussion we had. And I'm, I'm really glad I had you on the episode. I learned a lot from you and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And I definitely look forward to having you back for other episodes for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure and I definitely look forward to future episodes. And thank you all for joining us on this very first episode of Muslims of the Melting Pot. We look forward to having you join for future episodes. And if there are any topics related to Muslim identity in the West that you would personally like to explore, let us know in the comments below. Assalamu alaikum.